Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of season 10. In this episode, I share insights from two fantastic and clever industry professionals who have brilliant advice to help you in your renovation or new build project. So let's dive in. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building, or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. I'm really excited to be bringing you this episode because I actually think it's a great lesson in what professionalism actually looks like in, a reno- in the renovation or building industry. Both my guests in this episode, they're experienced and passionate about their projects and their clients and helping them get the best results for their projects. Now, my first guest on this episode is Rie Arai Coop. And I, Rie, I really hope that I've pronounced your name correctly there. I know we spoke about it during our interview. It's a beautiful name. And Rie is from Bluebird Property Partners in Brisbane. My second guest on this episode is Sarah Hayes, who's the owner of The Built Element, which is a Maitland-based boutique building business. So firstly, let me tell you about Rier. At Bluebird Property Partners, Rier is a client-side project manager, and she helps busy property owners to coordinate their renovations and new builds from start to finish. Most of Bluebird's clients come to them because they want to renovate, but they don't know the first place to start, or they have some knowledge, but just don't have the time to execute the project between their day jobs and family commitments. After a long and successful career in property development, Rie left the corporate world in 2018 and she founded Bluebird Property Partners with another female development professional, Claire O'Rourke. They started Bluebird because they wanted to help people realise their property dreams. And interestingly, they both actually worked at Mervac, which is where I worked for a long time, but we never crossed paths. But uh, I love being able to find property professionals and bring them to you because uh, these two women are doing an incredible job of operating at such a high level of professionalism to help individual homeowners. And I think that will really come across in my interview. Now, Rier and Claire know that renovating and building can be one of the most stressful processes in a person's life, and they want to remove that stress and help make the process more enjoyable. And Bluebird is an all-female team, and thus they like to think that they work with their clients and on each of their projects in a way that's not commonly found in the industry. Not only do they have the experience and the expertise. They offer a highly transparent, personalised and thoughtful service to their clients and they treat every project like it is their own. So without further ado, let's dive into my interview with Rie. Rie, thank you so much for joining me. It's really great to meet you. We uh, obviously worked at the same business, but never crossed paths there. But it's lovely to have this common experience in our careers. I think when you work somewhere like Mervac, uh, that's got such a strong culture, it's uh, it's really great to then have a level of famili- familiarity with each other as industry professionals because we've worked from that same foundation. So it's I'm really excited to have you here and also to learn more about Bluebird Property Partners and this business that you and Claire have created together. If you can just talk me through, you know, as I said, you've had some big industry development experience and Bluebird Property Partners is more focused on helping individual homeowners with their renovations or new builds. How do you believe your big industry development experience actually helps those homeowners at a local, you know, individual level? Yeah. Well, thank you, Professor, or first of all, for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be on your podcast and I was very excited when um, when we got in contact. Um 
In terms of how my big development experience translates into that small space, I guess as a project manager, which is what we, which is the service that Bluebird Property Partners provide, um, the skill set for project management is totally relatable, whether it's large projects or small projects. It's really about knowing the process, um, having great relationships and knowing, you know, how to work within those project teams and how to scope and plan for those particular projects. So um, something that through my career with Mervac, I have spent a lot of time in establishing, you know, my experience and expertise in understanding what it is that we need to scope up from a, from a particular uh, for a particular project in that brief. Um, having spent a number of years on a number of projects, I've gained a lot of experience in what not to do as well. And so being able to have that foresight and establishing that within the brief, whether it's knowing um, the actual design and construction parameters that we need to include in that in that brief or whether it's the program and the timelines or what we can actually fit within that budget, making sure we're getting value for money, all of that has come from that development, that big development experience and is as you could imagine, is totally relatable, whether it's a kitchen renovation or, you know, or a big multi-residential apartment project, say. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, we were talking off air, obviously, about how I think working inside a large business like that definitely gives you a lot of uh, experience in working to deadlines, operating with high level of efficiency and um, being very professional in how you practice and also working at a really great communication level with team members because, you know, somewhere like Mervac, which was so team-based, um, to be able to communicate on all those different agendas and benchmarks and everything like that, I know that that has served me incredibly well in the work that I do with individual homeowners um, to really be able to bring all of that into play. So I can see that that would stand you in incredibly good stead for being a project manager on individual projects. When somebody comes to Bluebird and says, you know, what would you actually do as my project manager? How do you explain your role to them um, and, and how you would help on their project? Yeah. So I always say, I always, we always start off explaining that a project involves a number of parties. So it involves an architect or a building designer. It involves the builder. It can involve the town planner. It can involve certifiers and surveyors, depending on the scale of the project. Um, as a project manager, we help to coordinate all of those elements. Um, again, like we were talking off, off air, project managers aren't necessarily an expert in one particular specialty. We are experts across the, uh, across the range um, at a higher level and we're able to bring all of those pieces together for that project puzzle. Um, where we come in as the most beneficial is right up front on a project so that we can actually help to scope up their, their needs within a budget and a time frame that is suitable for them. Sometimes our and majority of the time our clients will actually not know how much what they want to do is actually worth um, and an approach that we take as the project managers and this is pre-meeting with the builders and the architects is actually to sit down and say what is what is your vision it's not necessarily you know you want to build you know you want to refresh your kitchen or you want to build extra bedrooms it's is it you want 
um, greater time with your family or a lower maintenance home or is it a greater entertaining space because that's something that you really value outside of work and in your home space. And so when we're able to take that bigger picture vision element and break it down to, okay, well, if that is what your actual objective is, then these are the things that we could probably do to shape that. And that's how we formulate that scope, which translates into a budget that, you know, that hopefully suits the client. Um, and so overall it's then bringing in the relevant parties and the, and, and the parts that bring that dream together. Yeah, and I, I love that you're doing that from a point of view of actually helping them identify what are you seeking to achieve by even undertaking this. It's something that I teach the UA community is really important to establish up front rather than just diving into a list of kind of all of the wants. You know, we want this number of bedrooms, this kind of living space, this, you know, kitchen, this, you know, bathroom to actually say, okay, what is this project actually ultimately about achieving? Because that can then give such clarity, can't it, about those decisions where budget might not be enough or where you might have a choice between options to be able to come back to that big vision and say, well, this is actually what we're wanting. And um, spending the money where it's necessary, absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah, I think and it's something you would appreciate um, with your t- time at Mervac is when we are going through that process, it's, yeah, it's drilling down into, well, what is the actual job that we're trying to serve what it, what is that that you know is it security is it happiness is it and, it and often I find with some clients it resonates some doesn't <laughs> but I find if that's the approach that we take we always always end up with 10 times better outcomes for the project than than like you are, like you say in terms of approaching it with a shopping list. Now in terms of that first step with a homeowner and eliciting that project brief, obviously you are starting with that big picture vision. How do you then go about really nutting that out? And why is it so important for you to do that in your role as a project manager upfront, sort of as the very first thing that you do with a homeowner? Because I find a lot of homeowners creating their project brief is not something that they see as a priority. They're sort of more worried about, okay, who's the builder we're going to work with? Who's the designer we're going to work with? And they don't spend a lot of time getting clear on kind of what it is that they want to do. How do you work with homeowners and why do you sort of, you know, talk to them about this being a priority and the first step that they need to take? I guess like a recent example, we met with a family and the very first meeting, it was pretty much exactly as you say, we got there and they said, okay, well, what kind, who are the builders that you would use and who are the architects that we would use? They were talking about demolishing their house, building new, um, but at the same time had all of these drawings prepared for their renovation. So you could quite quickly see that they were really struggling to come up with a plan and an actual firm idea of what they were trying to achieve. So taking that step back in terms of working out what it was and in that instance the family just wanted a more livable space for their family. When you actually walked into their home it was a typical Queenslander with lots of broken up rooms. The living room was at the front of the house and the kitchen and the dining was at the back and they've got young children and they couldn't see them when they were playing. And so for us it was okay, so they need an open plan living space was was like one of the first design requirements that they needed. Um, we said, okay, well, if you wanted to renovate, you know, this is potentially a ballpark figure that you would be looking at or alternatively this is, you know, within that within their budget we were looking at potentially spec homes. 
um, you know, on the more affordable end. And so when it came down to it, it wasn't a matter of whether or not we should do a renovation or a spec house. It actually came down to how that family was living, which then dictated whether or not a, the renovation option was preferable versus a spec home. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's a it's a very different process than I think a lot of um, – I mean, I, I – I, it's it's funny because for me that's just part and parcel of the first step of working with somebody is to really dig deep, ask a lot of questions, really understand what is this homeowner ultimately seeking from their lifestyle in their home and what's going to be the best strategy for us to achieve that outcome. But I, I suppose the more I speak with homeowners and the more I see what their experience is of navigating the industry generally, the more unusual I can see that is that, you know, it's – and I think that for a homeowner, it's a really good early red flag if you find that somebody's just basically following your instructions and saying, well, this is what you've told me you want and so I'm just going to go ahead and start barreling on delivering that, that for me is a really good red flag that that person isn't sort of using their expertise to really dig deeper, understand your criteria, understand your needs and your wants and really confirm for you that what you're asking for, that them as the professional and the expert believe that that's actually going to be the best fit for your needs. So, I mean, you work with professionals and experts because you're ultimately wanting to gain from that experience and expand your own sense and knowledge of what's possible. And so I think that seeing an expert um, really kind of query your line of thinking about what your, you know, some people come with like kind of foregone conclusions about what it's got to look like. And it's, and I find it's really interesting when you start sort of going, well, have you thought about this? Is this a deal breaker for you? Um, and they're like, oh gosh, I didn't even think about that. Or, you know, oh no, that hadn't even occurred to me. And it's like, well, you're not as set on this as you really thought you were. How about we instead look at, you know, this, this, and this. So I love that this is how you start with homeowners. The, the process of looking for a designer for them, and helping them find a suitable designer once you've established that project brief and really sort of nutted out what's going to be a good fit for their journey. How do you, what's, what criteria do you use to find? And you mentioned both architect or building designer. How do you, how do you set the criteria for which one you might choose and, and how you kind of go about sourcing that for a homeowner and then ensuring it's a good fit for them? Yeah. So there's no hard and fast rule that we apply. So we don't say this value is therefore an architect or vice versa. Um, It really comes down to the individual project, the individual client. We might have a very small budget and a, you know, relatively straightforward um, renovation, for example, but it might the client might have a real design edge. So therefore we, you know, not necessarily architect or a building designer, but bringing in, you know, a renowned interior designer, for example. So we've had those um, projects and, you know, conversely we've had large scale renovations where they are quite, whilst they are large in terms of value, they're also relatively straightforward, you know, contained within the building envelope itself not necessarily requiring any extensions and this and we're able to come up with a concept with the client that fits within the structure of the building so therefore a building designer might be the more appropriate avenue to go down Um, and then in that sense then we're able to potentially use some of those cost savings that we know that we might necessarily spend you know previously spent on an architect in you know in applying a nicer level of finish so 
Um, it really comes down to different projects. Um, we have a, an extensive network of architects and designers and interior, you know, interior designers and builders that we use and we activate those relationships on every project as we see a, a appropriate. Saying that, we still always like to table a number of options so that the client has transparency in fees and, um, and, you know, and buying into that decision-making process as well. So. Yeah, because it's such a personal relationship, isn't it, to be able to find that right fit and for them to feel comfortable in communicating with their designer. I know a lot of homeowners fear that when they use a designer, they'll ultimately lose control of their project and they'll be railroaded into decisions they don't want to make and it'll be about delivering the designer's vision and not their own and that they'll have to deal with ego and all of this kind of stuff. So it's a great Actually, yeah, you talk about that. I was working with an architect recently and um, – or we were potentially working with an architect and they were quite renowned in their design. And I actually just, I actually said to the client, look, I think we are better off using someone else that we had also tabled purely for the fact that some of those initial conversations, I hadn't worked with this architect before, but we thought, okay, we'll put them on the table as an option. And even just from the early conversations, my gut feel was that it wasn't going to be a collaborative process. And I just thought, as you say, red flags for me, project teams and relationships is almost just as important as, you know, the quality of the designer or the contractor because you have to deal with them every day. You have to have those open and honest, transparent conversations. And if you can't do that from the very beginning, it's not going to happen when the pressure's on. So I've seen times where a homeowner is particularly love the aesthetic or the style of a, of a certain designer and then being quite shocked that that designer's turned around and said, look, we're not really used to having clients tell us what they want. We're pretty much used to telling the client what they get, you know, and it's like, and you think, well, that's obviously how they're managing to create very consistent projects that always look the same, but it's if you're not willing to work with a designer in that way, that can be very problematic. <laughs> now, you've mentioned budget um, earlier in your conversation. Of course, one big nervous area of nerves for homeowners is I'm going to be working away on this design. How am I going to know that it's actually going to be on budget and I'm not going to get disappointed, you know, at the point that we go to tender or or, you know, work with a builder on getting a quote done. How do you ensure that the budget is set correctly and then that um, the design moves on in alignment with the budget so that the homeowner is ultimately not disappointed at the point of uh, wanting to sign contracts with a builder? Yeah. Um, All plan, 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 plan. (laughs) Spend as much time as you can in that planning phase. Get everything locked down as much as you – I mean, there's always going to be things that, you know, latent conditions on site, for example, that you're just not going to ever know what's behind that wall or under that slab. But as much planning as you can possibly make. Allow for contingencies as well. I always say to our clients – I'm really confident this price is going to come in at this price, but I still really want you to have a little 5% contingency just so in the event we have a little variation or you might want to change something throughout the project, then there's a little buffer sitting there. But it comes down again to that briefing, the planning. When we when we work with you, we do the, vision, the visioning with the client and then we, you know, we and at the same time we understand, we try to understand, you know, what are their budget parameters um, but in that, you know, we could determine, well, what are the must-haves versus the nice-to-haves, whether or not it's appropriate 
for staging if they can't afford everything that they want to do. So we work through that vision, the briefing, reverse briefing, finalising that briefing, and then we go out and we start qualifying. You know, obviously through our experience, we have in you know data and knowledge in terms of benchmark pricing and ballpark figures, and then we go out and we can we can you know further qualify that that initial scope and brief so that by the time we get to the tendering stage and the design, you know, the detailed design stage, we have a very good understanding of where that budget is sitting and making sure that the scope is aligned with what the client wants. And so and so then when we do get to that contract signing stage, we're very clear on what are the risk areas, what are the potential exclusions, what are the things that we need to make allowances for. Um, if we haven't, in which we typically try to wrap it all up with the builder. So, um, yeah, so I think it's it all comes down to that planning and making sure that you really invest in that time. As, ever, as you know, as everyone knows, you make a decision throughout construction. It's going to blow out any cost savings that you think you've, you know, achieved at the front end. That's great advice. And I think that that really demonstrates how important, uh, I think your project management experience is in seeing the success of having that level of methodic approach to getting all of your ducks in a row before construction starts. I tell um, the UI community often that there's a significant amount of work that happens before construction starts, but what most people are doing is racing through it in desperation to get their project built and uh, and then delaying a whole heap of decision-making and that's when, yeah, it just all goes pear-shaped on site. So it's uh, it's far better to get everything Steer sorted. Steer clear of provisional allowances <laughs> where you can. When you don't have those if you can avoid it. So. Oh, that's great advice. How do you charge for your services in a project? I know that it would be different based on the scope and the role that you'd be performing, but um, obviously people will be saying, how much does it cost to have this in my project? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what, how do you normally charge How much money do you have? <laughs> how do you no, yeah. I mean, it's a question we get asked every every single meeting, um, obviously. So, but it uh, depending on scope, it can be. It all it also depends on the time frame is probably one of the biggest um, dictating factors because if if it's a compressed time frame, if someone wants to do something that might take three months and they've only got six weeks, then obviously it's a lot more resource intensive, a lot more planning, a lot a lot more that we need to do. So therefore. Um, you know, we might pay, we might charge a fixed fee in that instance um, on the basis that we've got locked down timeline and that's it. And so whereas something that, say, a new build, we might pay, we might charge a, an ongoing monthly retainer knowing that it might take 12 months from start to finish, um, at least the client has a level of certainty. We're also covered if there's delays in development approvals or anything to that extent but there's a level of certainty for both us and the client. Um, and then you know, then there's other projects where we've just been brought on um, just for very small components, so we might charge on an hourly basis. So um, for project managers in the industry as a, as a benchmark on an hourly rate because everyone charges different for fixed fees and, and retainers and the like, but... I don't know, you could be paying anywhere between $150 to $400, you know, depending on obviously the scale of the project. But, you know, somewhere in the middle is probably about what you'd expect to pay for a project manager. 
I mean, I always say that the money that you spend on the professionals you get help from should come back to you in the return that you get on, you know, avoided mistakes, you know, strategy about how you spend your budget overall, actually choosing the right approach for your project. You know, so many people kind of just, as, as we were talking earlier, have this foregone conclusion about what they're going to do. They just barrel on in and put together a team that they haven't really thought about very much. And there's just all this money that falls into the gaps and the assumptions and the mistakes that could be so better spent on getting, you know, expert help to really help you assess how you're spending your budget overall um, rather than it just being, okay, we've got this amount of money to build with and we're going to scrimp on everything else, you know, so yeah, that we, we can absolutely. get there. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. We always say like project management, the way we structure our business project management fees will always or should always be offset by the savings that you make. So whether it's Savings in time, which is hard to qualify, but you know, put an interest rate on that and it can stack up pretty quickly. Um, savings in you know, being so Bluebird, we actually often outsource things like tiles or appliances direct from suppliers. So then we get the the trade discounts. We pass those directly onto our clients, so we don't take something off the top. Um, so in that in itself can thousands of dollars at times um and then and then we also you know we've got relationships long-term commercial relationships with contractors and suppliers and the like where you know, for example a joinery contractor they love working with us because of our approach to projects that they've also offered us another 15 percent on top of trade discounts just so that they can continue to keep that pipeline with us because they enjoy working with us so that further 15% on, you know, call it $20,000 worth of joinery in a kitchen in a renovation, then, you know, that can quite quickly add up and offset all of those project management savings as well. And that they're the little things that we can add, let alone the expertise in the general value management of projects. So, Now, when it actually comes to the construction phase, how do you recommend or how do you work with um, the client and the builder to make sure things are going smoothly? Because, you know, I know I have recommendations for homeowners that they need to be on site weekly or have a representative on site weekly. A lot of homeowners will think of the builder as their project manager. And I often say the builder is their own project manager. They're not your project manager as a client. They're, they've got an obligation to deliver on a contract, but if something might need to be changed or adjusted, their obligation is to the contract. It's not to what your wishes and wants might be, you know, over and above that. So having an advocate or being your own advocate is super important. How, what do you, what does construction look like for you guys as project managers to make sure that everything is running smoothly, that, that, you know, there's no mistakes and nothing falling through the cracks? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Regular site visits that, that can go a long way in resolving a lot of issues. Um, and the, the regularity, whether it's weekly or fortnightly, um, being on site will always bring discussions, concerns and details to the forefront of your mind um, and also keep the builders on track with their progress as well. So, you know, I've seen before where people have just not gone to site or have gone on holiday, say, for a month and they've come back and, oh, Finally, nothing's really happened since I've been away. And so, yes, yeah, so a regular site visits. Um, reg what we always try to establish with all of our builders is whether it's an informal report or a formal report, a, a progress update. So, 
um, for the longer term projects. You know, if we're building, we've got um, a project where we're building two new houses and a full renovation on the one project. So we're getting monthly progress client reports that has detailed photos, what they've done in the last month and what they're doing in the next month. Um, and it just helps to give that level, keep that level of sophistication on that project. Um, with other projects of smaller scale, I like to have weekly updates from the builder, quick email, let me know what they have done, any issues that have been on site and what they're planning to do if they're foreseeing any concerns in any in any of the projects in the, in the foreseeable future. So I think commu- like written communication, regular site visits, and when you're dealing with builders, when you are working on site, inevitably there are always there are always some form of variation. I would say um, we've tried to negate you know, negate them, but they're inevitable. And I always I always say to our clients, we try and take an approach to the variation or the or the issue or the cost, whatever it is that. The, the issue that's been tabled with a really open mind. Um, the builders are necessarily there to take advantage of you. You know, they are there to run a business as well. So we're always trying to find a win-win situation for everyone. Um, if we're constantly trying to screw the builder or the consultants or the contractors or the suppliers, you'll end up with a with a poor poor result and you know, at times when you do need them to step up, if you've been constantly hitting them over the head, then you're not going to get the desired outcome. So, so I always say it's always, you know, a two-way relationship on every project. Um, and that approach in the long run will always, will always win, you know, win rungs on the board. I think Claire, my business partner, what is it? It's, um, you'll always attract more honey with you know, with bees with honey than with vinegar. So, you know, I think that is absolutely gold in terms of the way that we approach it. I think what's coming through for me is just the level of professionalism with which this whole situation is being handled. I think homeowners can handle situations far too casually and there's a lot of builders out there that handle situations far too casually. They don't execute to the letter of the contract. That It's almost because the relationship is about something personal on something so personal, a lot of the rigour drops away. And I really encourage homeowners to understand that when you operate you know, when you treat the builder like a professional who needs to deliver expertise and you establish a set of expectations about having that kind of behaviour and that kind of operation, then you can run the project far more professionally and with a lot more rigour and things like those weekly updates. I see homeowners complaining, oh, my builder never gave me a program or my builder never told me what to expect each week. And it's like, well, when did you say yes to that? When did you say that was going to be okay? You know, so um, builders and when, you know, builders not managing their cash flow and builders not anticipating or telling a a client, you know, when decisions need to be made and basically giving them 24 hours to make a decision. And it's just, it's not how good building practices happen and it's not how good builders operate. So I think that you can vet all of this stuff in that interview process by asking builders, how do they sort of operate? And, um, and of course, bringing a project manager on board means that you don't have to be the one ensuring that that's actually going to be the way that your project runs through. So, now, lastly, Ria, before I let you go, 
Can you, if you were going to tell homeowners anything before they started on their project besides coming to Bluebird and using yeah. your advice? <laughs> <laughs> okay, straighten that one out. <laughs> what, what would be the piece of information I suppose that you think would arm them the best in, you know, if they knew this before they started um, on their renovation or building project, it would ultimately help them get a far better result. What would be that piece of advice that you'd offer them? probably harped on it already quite a lot but it's really really thinking about your ultimate vision for the project what it is don't jump straight into kitchen refresh extra bedrooms new bathroom it's what is what is it that you're ultimately trying to achieve because that will potentially change the entire plan for what what you're intending to do so sit down and and spend the time in what that ultimate vision is um, and really just try to have fun I think is probably key in all of this. If, if you're going into it feeling stressed and overwhelmed, it's not going to be an enjoyable process. So if you're going in there lighthearted, you know, thinking that you're going to, you know, realising that you ultimately get something that you really want out of it, then then it's going to be yeah, an amazing outcome. Look, Rio, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. You've offered some incredible pearls of wisdom on uh, how to run a project efficiently, why project manager can be such a huge asset on your project, and also just some really great tips for homeowners to think about when working with designers, choosing designers, choosing their builders. I can't thank you enough for your generosity and your time. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Now, I hope that you found that interview helpful. It's really great to see how Ria and Claire have seen an opportunity to use their big development experience from a place like Mervac to help individual homeowners. And Ria just shared a wealth of knowledge and experience so generously in that interview. I hope you took away some real gold nuggets that are really going to help you in your project. Now, I can't wait to introduce my second guest for this interview, and this is Sarah Hayes. I actually personally met, and I say met in inverted commas, uh, Sarah, for the first time when she became a member of my online course, How to Get It Right. You know, Sarah's a, as a builder, and she joined how to get it right because she wanted to learn more about the design process so that she could really support and understand her clients and their needs and really really support them through that process. And as an aside, I actually have quite a few builders who've joined How to Get It Right because they want to understand more about good design and give their clients guidance in that regard. And that I just love that because what we talk about in How to Get It Right are the core fundamentals of really good design that's going to last over the long term, really support family life, really help make your life easier and simpler, more convenient, more fun. And uh, builders, you know, joining and getting to see that overall picture rather than just obviously the construction part with they handle, they get to then be able to understand that step-by-step process and that holistic picture just makes them such better builders. So it's really lovely to be able to see builders join and particularly to have met Sarah this way and now to be able to bring Sarah to you on the podcast because she is one clever bunny. So Sarah is a director and owner of her company, the Built Element, and it's a construction business that she founded in Maitland, New South Wales in 2014. The Built Element offers residential and commercial client-side project management consulting services, residential new builds, and development feasibilities with landowners. Sarah actually has 25 years 
construction experience in the commercial and residential building sectors on a vast array of projects. And she now brings this knowledge to the built element projects as well. And she outlines in our interview how she's worked on everything from $70 million commercial projects and significant government work through to high-end apartments and everything in between. Now, you'll hear in the interview just how passionate Sarah is about sustainable design and construction. She believes that building better is not hard, but that there are complex numbers of factors that must all align for it to be well resolved overall. At The Built Element, they believe that good building is honest, it is sustainable, it is pleasing and functional, and it feeds the senses. And Sarah is known for her sharp attention to detail and her exceptional project leadership skills. From establishing scope and viability of a project, to setting and adhering to budgets and schedule, to process implementation, Sarah's expertise will save you time and money. And she sees herself as a facilitator informing clients the why and how of best building practice, to give them the knowledge that they need to make informed decisions and to build the best home they can within their budget for their family, their life and their environment. Sarah is awesome in this interview. She shares so many pearls of wisdom. So settle in and let's dive into the questions. Well, Sarah, it's fantastic to have you here. I'm so excited to actually get to meet you online and and uh, and put a face to the name that I've been um, interacting with for some time now through, of course, you being a member of How to Get It Right. And I'm so excited to be sharing you and your knowledge with the UA community because you're a clever bunny. You have a lot of wisdom when it comes to building and you're very passionate about uh, helping homeowners get it right in this area. Now, I hate saying this because I don't think of myself as a female architect, but obviously, female builder is an anomaly. And uh, when I said to people, I'm interviewing a female builder on the podcast next week, they were like, oh, wow, that's just, you know, that's going to be amazing. So um, what made you choose construction as an area to get into and, you know, go about setting up your own business in that regard? Well, it was sort of a natural progression of steps. Um, Pretty much started with my family background. So my parents were very early adapters. Um, they had a farm in Orange. They were, had permaculture principles with their farming. Um, they renovated a very old cottage, you know, in the 70s to have solar passive design principles. Um, so it started from there. And my father was a town planner, a social worker and a politician. So funnily enough, you know, I pursued this path um, into construction because I was interested in how people lived, how people could live better, how people could afford to live better. And then it sort of developed into my want and my awareness of um, the planet. Um, You know, when I was young, the 1970s oil crisis were happening and all my parents and their hippie friends were like, oh, the oil crisis. And, you know, so we've been having these conversations in my family for, you know, 40 years or so. Yeah, I became very aware that um, buildings used a lot of materials. Buildings also wasted a lot of materials. Um, People were building with status in mind. Um, People didn't have very well-resolved houses. I ended up going to uni in Canberra, which is freezing cold, and I went, oh, my God, you know, everyone's living in asbestos boxes. This is just, you know, horrible, being a poor student. Um, Then I got the opportunity to do an accelerated carpentry apprenticeship, Um, And I took that opportunity. So I did that for uh, two years. I worked on all sorts of jobs. I worked on the foreign affairs and trade job. I worked in, you know, bathroom renos, kitchen renos, um, worked as a form worker at Canberra Airport, 
you know, sort of got thrown out, you know, to whoever needed me. I was with the CFMEU apprenticeship program. And being on commercial sites, I realised that there were professional builders that build these big commercial buildings. And I decided after a while that I was better off using my brain rather than my brawn because I'm quite a short person. And um, I always seem to be paired up with the six foot tall bloke. And it was like, uh, yeah, I know lots of women tradies that are really capable, strong, tall people. But for me, it was using my brain. So I went back to uni, ended up doing architecture for a little bit and changed to construction management. From my observations working on commercial sites, that's where the decisions were being made. That's where um, they had control of the budget. That's where they had control of the design. Um, because often these things are outsourced by the client, you know, as a DNC project to the head contractor slash builder, and they engage the architect or the consultants, et cetera, and they produce the final product. So I worked in commercial construction for quite some time in um, Sydney and Canberra, um, worked as a contracts administrator, also worked as a site supervisor. From there, um, I ended up, you know, was having my first baby and realised that, you know, I couldn't really chuck up to site at seven o'clock in the morning with a baby. So then I started my own subcontract business with my partner um, and we ran that for 12 years. It's still going. Um, it's a fire sprinkle business and we so we mainly do commercial work. We do shopping centres, car parks, nursing homes, that sort of thing. Um, then in around 2010, we built we built, bought a very, very old heritage-listed house. Folly, some people may say. It's in the flood zone, termite-riddled. You know, it's got everything you could imagine, but we absolutely love it. And that precipitated me thinking, oh, you know, maybe I should get my builder's licence. So off I went and did my set flooring construction and building. Um, And then once I'd done that and jumped through a few more hoops to get my certificate of currency for home warranties, um, home warranty eligibility, then, you know, a few people approached me, oh, you want to build this, you want to build that? And it's sort of a natural progression um and now my kids are a bit older you know I can actually devote more time to it I'm really passionate about it and I've been I'm an avid reader and researcher and I'm always you know sussing out who's doing what next and you know stalking people online and trying to extract all their great ideas from their websites and their their brains and their building methodologies and I'm really interested in people taking control building for their budget so they're not in crazy debt Building so their homes are comfortable, building so they're not wasting resources. You know, we're on a finite planet. Um, and those conversations aren't normalised. You know, people are all about butlers' pantries and stone bench tops and double bathroom en suites, um, double, you know, basin en suites. And I just don't think that's necessary. Um, there's a lot of people here in the planet and we've got to have a systems approach to things. You know, it's got to be balanced. It's got to be regenerative and you know sort of try and empower people to live you know as off grid as possible to do you know use their grey water you know have solar panels compost have the veggie patch have the herb garden you know as big or small as they can do it that's all fine but you know start to live that way be actively involved in your life Um, I think a lot of people are disconnected in urban areas um, particularly cities they don't have those choices but those choices can be built into the fabric of cities and suburbs, you know, having pocket parks, community gardens, um, walkable cities, you know, transport. And it's about connection. It's about, you know, stopping loneliness. It's about the older people looking after the younger people and this intergenerational mould instead of 
dumping someone in the suburbs where they have to have a car. It's trying to empower people and, yeah, giving them the knowledge so they can make informed decisions. I so love it. That, yeah. That's my sort of mantra. Yeah, I love it. I love, I love how, I just love how it all feeds in together to a much bigger picture for the impact that the work that you do every day has in the larger conversation about how we live on the planet and with each other and, you know, as a community. And I think that this is the power of uh, the built environment generally and something that I know the UA community um, is is learning more and more. And, you know, what um, I, I know that I seek to do in, tra- in the in the types of people that I and the information that I bring to the UA community, it is that thing of, you know, that how the built environment exists impacts all of us and we all get to make choices in how we create it and, and let's do that with intention and understanding. So yeah. I love that there's this, yeah, this big picture play in in your business and and your choices about you know what you're seeking to do so you call your business the built element who do you what kinds of clients do you work with whereabouts are you located you know what types of projects do you do um so the built element um firstly the name is that the built element is one part of your life you know you have many parts of your life and they're all interdependent so it's that connection um we mainly do um, second homeowners, um, investors, downsizers, um, those sort of people who are more focused on um, the quality and design of the build rather than price point. Um, obviously, we're always trying to push budget to achieve the most and work with people with what they've got, essentially, and do a lot of problem solving for them. Um, we're based in Maitland in New South Wales, so we're about an hour and a half north of Sydney, and we're very close to Newcastle. So we work in the lower Hunter area. Um, I do a lot of client-side project management, um, and with that business, I or that part of our service, we you know sort of go anywhere within a two-hour radius because we don't have to be on site every day. Um, with our new builds and our renovations, we try and keep it you know within a 20-minute radius of where we are because for me, supervision is key. Um, you've got to be there on the ground every day as much as possible. Um, that's when things go wrong, when you have poor supervision. If you're not monitoring and watching and scheduling your trades correctly, you know, it all falls apart very quickly. Um, and we're also looking at um, just recently doing resident-led development with landowners. Um, so someone's got a site, they've got equity in their site, you know, they've got a, you know, decent-sized site that that can be redeveloped, we're working with them to use that equity to um, do urban infill essentially and um, that's really exciting um, delving into that world because you have more control and you can make, like you said, choices with greater intention. So we're looking at small, compact, well-resolved, architecturally designed homes, communal open space, private open space. Um, So... Um, we've got our first project underway with that at the moment and we're looking at investors for the second one. Um, we're just keeping it more small scale, getting proof of concept happening and then, you know, hoping that that education process can roll out and, you know, invigorate others to try and do the same. That's exciting. Uh, so that's what the built elements are. You're, I mean, you're obviously very passionate about sustainable design, exploring these different models of living as well, looking at how affordability factors into that too. 
And I find that, um, you know, a lot of homeowners that I speak to, they're bypassing designers and architects completely and they're going straight to the builder to get their projects created. So I see the builder as an incredibly important spokesperson for the importance of design um, in that process. Um, why, why do you believe that building a sustainably designed home is a better way to build? Why, why do you see this play out really well for homeowners overall? Um, in my view, it's the only way to build. So it's using all your resources, your your financial, personal resources, your your budget, your energy, your money, your work life, you know, how much you have to work to pay back that debt that you've borrowed to build that house. It's the ongoing running cost of your house. It's also um, people are designing for ageing in place. They're designing for multi-generational living. You know, kids can't afford to move out. So you've got to be really thinking smartly that your spaces are multi-use and then you're also looking about the comfort of that space. If your house is resilient in these hot weather extremes, it's a comfortable place to be. We've had a really, really shockingly hot summer here in Maitland and it's been quite debilitating for some people. And it's almost as bad as, you know, those extreme winter events when you can't leave the house. And seriously, everyone's just been migrating to the beach for days on end to try and deal with a heat wave. So sustainable building takes into a whole host of factors. Firstly, it's the personal, it's the family, then it's the community and it's also the planet, the resources, use and wastage. You know, you don't want to be, you know, having a badly resolved design where you're wasting a whole heap of material, you're paying for that material, then you're paying to dump that material. The planet's lost that material forever unless people start, you know, going through landfill and recovering materials, which will probably end up happening one day. Um, so I just think it's intrinsic. It's informing people that this matters and why it matters and that it's for their their good it's for all our good. Uh, and the building industry is a huge consumer of uh, materials and energy and also a huge producer of waste. So I think that um, when we think about building and design with that in mind, it c- we have the opportunity to make a huge dent on on the, the global impact of this overall. So now in terms of building, I know uh, one of the things I experience time and time again with homeowners is that initial conversation of it's going to cost what? You know, it's that that shock yep. of of um, of just completely mismatched expectations with their dreams and their brief to what construction actually physically costs these days, whether you're building or renovating. How how do you explain this to homeowners? Why things cost so much and why it's so different to what their expectations are? I really break it down for them. So I follow the model that a lot of builders are doing now in doing preliminary agreements. And that preliminary agreement involves full cost plans um, and 100% design and obviously, you know, your initial site investigations. Um, So I explain to them what a cost plan is and how it's put together. So essentially a cost plan could be, you know, 10 to 16 pages of line items. You could have two to 500 line items. All of those line items could be between $200 to $2,500 each. And that involves all the trades and involves all your design work and approvals. It involves all your um, initial site costs, involves your craneage, um, your transportation, your freight, your site labour, your supervision. Um, then it involves the labour of the trades and it involves all the materials. Then we're talking about landscaping, driveways, curtains, blinds you know, 
and all your services. So if you look at it and you really spell it out to them in that way, they can see, okay, I've got 10 pages of line items. That's why it's costing you know, three to four hundred thousand dollars or whatever the figure may be. And then you have people who say, Oh, I want the 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 fancy sink or the fancy tapware or oh, I actually need, you know, three living areas. Well, okay, you go to twenty pages of line items. Um and the other thing is that in terms of those costings, trades in Australia get paid well generally, depending on who you're working with or, you know, what sort of arena you're in, they generally get paid well. And I'm of the view that they deserve to get paid well. Um, one, their their pay rates um, reflect the demand for their services, and we all know that there's a shortage of good qualified trades in the country. And when there's a boom on, those prices are going to go up, obviously, and it's really hard to get your hands on, you know, that great bricklayer because no one wants to be a bricklayer anymore. Then the other issue with trades is, you know, a lot of the time their bodies are broken by the time they're 50. They have a really short working life. And the other thing is a lot of these guys are their own business as well. They are subcontractors. They are trained, they are qualified, they are licensed, they have their own insurances, they have their own staff, they have their own utes, you know, they have their, you know, their supplier accounts, so it all adds up. So you've got one big head contractor builder with all these little business under it and everyone's, you know, applying their costs as need be to keep themselves going and to provide consistency for the industry and quality. Then you've got the material component of your cost plan which, you know, you can break up cost plans every different way by tray or by element or, you know, kilos of nails, you know. That's what we used to do in commercial. How many kilos of nails do we need? It's like, oh, my God, how are you going to work this one out? Anyway, so materials. Materials, 20 years ago, they used to have a price rise every three years or so. Nowadays, they're seeing price rises on average of 6 to 8% three times a year. Wow. I had a big talk yesterday to one of my supplier's branch managers. I said, okay, I'm doing this podcast tomorrow. What's the go with materials? It does everyone's head in. You know, obviously volume builders, you know, they negotiate rates for 12-month contracts. They get their material prices locked in. Um, others of us have ongoing good relationships. We have good credit histories. They know we're good payers and we can, we, we, you know, we can push it a bit with our margins and we can say, oh, come on, you know, this is the third job this year. You can do better than that. So you've got the wholesaler who produces the material, they've got their margin on it. You've got the supplier, they've got their margin on it. You've got the builder, they've got their margin on it. And then you've got the person, you know, Joe Blow, who walks in the street, they get a different price yet again. So it all adds up. It all adds up. And why these materials prices are going up, you know, annually three times, you know, I think it's a bit like banks, you know, oh, we've got to put interest rates up, you know, for wholesale funding costs. It's like, well, you know, it's, it's to do with the dollar, fluctuating dollar. Um, a lot of our products are imported. We don't make much in Australia. So we, and then we're, our, our guys are actually lowering their margins. Their margins are eroded to compete with, you know, international products. So there's a lot of things at play. There's a lot of macroeconomic forces at play here. And then you've got demand as well. People like, you know, you pay for what you get and then if you want the brand name on it, you're going to pay more. Yeah. That's how I try and explain to them. So they're not they're not in such shock. <laughs> like, you look at the big picture of everything that's involved. This is why. Yeah, well, I think I think just that simple illustration of how many 
detail components, both from a material, a labour, a margin, a freight point of view, go into putting a house renovation or build together. And I mean, I've seen those, you know, quotes so many times and the number of line items, but it is, it's that that thing, I think, that um, builders often do themselves a disservice by presenting quotes as a single page letter and it just being this single line item and not showing all of the working parts that go into what that price is actually comprised of. And, you know, I I was chatting to an American um, guy, Sean Van Dyke, who coaches contractors over there. And he he's a big believer, um, as am I, in not having prices against each of those line items, but those line items being an opportunity to spell out scope and what's included and then the price being a lump sum at the end. But it does illustrate just how many things go into your project. And often when you find big differences in quotes between builders, it's because stuff's been missed out. Because like you say, not it's it's not like people are getting a magic price that makes them so much cheaper um, than everybody else. Uh, time and time again, I find that the big variances in quotes are because a builder has overlooked something or they've substituted something of lower quality, um, you know, or something like that. So it's a really tricky yeah. arena, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a great, it's great to hear how you explain it to homeowners. Now, you mentioned the difficulty around conversations about money. I've seen that too. Um, so what are some of the other things that you say homeowners and particularly women? Because I find that it's often women that are um, dealing directly with the builder, trying to manage, you know, they're often, um, they might be the one that's sort of coordinating the project and they're the one attending site meetings. How do you see homeowners struggle with the kinds of things that they need to do as part of working with a builder in their project? Um, well, I've heard you talk about this before and I've had this before as well, you know, like I'm the secretary or I'm the office girl or whatever. Um, and it's like when you go to a mechanic, they say, oh, we'll talk to your husband. Um, I think that is changing slowly, slowly. I think women need to be assertive, know they are the client, really coach themselves in being able to have non-confrontational friendly discussions with their builder you know, we with our projects, we um, do weekly meetings. Um, we do run it like a big job, you know, where we have PCG meetings, so project control group meetings, you know, after contract, actually even before contract, we'll have a, a set of minutes running with an agenda by trade, you know, actioning items, closed off, ticked off, who's responsible for what, and that will run throughout the entire project. Um, things will get closed off, new things will get added below. Um that is a really transparent way of documenting the job from beginning to end for everyone um, and it's a way to make people accountable and it's also a way to make people informed of, you know, what they've got to be pre-planning. You know, this is happening a month. Get it organised now. For women, yeah, it is about communication. It is about, you know, if you think your build is struggling and you're not sure about something, try to be able to have a non-confrontational conversation with them because, Builders, I find the typical perhaps older bloke or even younger bloke um, can get quite defensive quite quickly Um, and it's really trying to diffuse that so you can have a genuine, open, honest conversation. And it's it's hard. It's hard. You've got to brace yourself for it. It's like, right, I've got all my information ready. I know what my questions are. I know what my expected answers are. You know, and if your builder is in distress, you know, he might have lost trades, you know, things might have been delayed. The window company may have lost the windows. All these things happen. 
Um, best planning, you can have so much planning in place and ticking boxes, calling people weekly, but things can still go awry. If you can really, I know it's, it doesn't sound quite right, but be non-threatening to your builder so they feel empowered to be that you're not going to go off the deep end if they give you some bad news. It's like, oh, we've got this situation, you know, this is what I put in place to resolve it. Um, these are the risks, but, you know, we're trying to, you know, pull back that time, etc. It's about honesty and, and getting rid of the fear. I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, really, if you're open and honest about it, let's work through this together. It, it's a hard one, but you're probably going to have harder conversations in your life, so don't be scared of it. It, it can be intimidating. but Yeah, it is. It's, it's that thing of seeing that you're a team, isn't it, and, uh, yeah. and having – I see I see it happen both ways. I see homeowners feel like they're being employed by the builder rather than the other way, you know, that they're not building that they, they're almost like they're asking the builder for permission for things as they sort of because they are too fearful of having a difficult conversation with them or questioning something that's being done or, you know, asking for more information on something. So that's sort of an odd relationship that I see. They're sort of seeking permission to speak to the builder mm-hmm. in a specific way. And then there's the, the at the other end end of the extreme is I see homeowners completely bullying their builder like they've got to keep them in line they've got to keep them in check and it and it and you know that they've got to be on them all the time and make sure that they're doing their job properly and it's like well if you're if you've done all your due diligence up front and you've you've found a builder who's comes really highly recommended you feel that they're across their process they've done a really good job of explaining to you really transparently how they run their business and how they run their projects and you've created that relationship of trust then step into that you know and it's it is it's that thing of any time something gets a little bit sticky jump on it straight away you don't you know it's that thing when it starts to fester and it goes on and nobody says anything yeah. and all yeah. of a sudden a molehills become a mountain then it's um it's really really tricky i see in some of the facebook groups that i'm a member of people complaining that you know for weeks their builders been um you know either not turning up on site and they're now asking for an extension of time or they're um they're they they keep telling their builder that they've made a mistake about something and the builder keeps saying don't worry i'll fix it i'll fix it i'll fix it and it never happens um and they just feel like they're not getting anywhere with the builder that isn't behaving how they would expect the builder to behave when do you recommend that the red flags really need to go up and sort of more severe, I suppose, steps or action needs to be taken. What what do you recommend home, how homeowners sort of handle that situation and what they should be looking for in those scenarios, whether they're going to be overreact, overreacting and it's something small that can be handled or whether they really need to do to take action more seriously and um, go to the, the commission in their state or um, the governing body? I find early on you can tell if a builder's in distress they're trying to preload progress claims. So they're claiming for work that's not done yet. And in your contract, you will have um, drawdown amounts or a schedule of progress claims. And obviously, if you if a bank's involved, they shouldn't be over-claiming um, and the bank will be verifying that that's a valid claim. But if they're pushing the envelope with money, you know they're in distress. And that's when I'd be bringing in a project manager to manage them and that that's definitely a red flag. Um, if people aren't on site for weeks on end, that's another red flag, obviously. And the thing is they shouldn't get into that situation because if they're claiming, if they're doing a variation, you know, it's documented. It's you say, I want to move that door from there to there. Okay, we'll, we'll price it up, we'll discuss it, you'll sign it, it'll 
be done, it'll be your next claim. You know, these things happen progressively throughout a job. It shouldn't be, you know, sitting there for a month with nothing happening. You know, if that's happened, obviously the builder's in distress and I'd be I'd be going straight to fair trading or seeking remedy through your contract. Don't let it linger. That's the thing, isn't it? So many people let it go on for so long and and just keep kind of waiting for things to change. You know, that hindsight, they look back and go, well, gosh, that's that's been four or five months I've been thinking that this was going to get better and not trusting that kind of signal coming up in their gut. Of, so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's that thing of remembering that you're – it's your home, your investment, your its ambassador, and um, and this is your team. You know, pulling it all together. Yes. So they're great tips for people to pay attention to and and uh, and to really, I suppose, take action on on trying to remedy the situation. So and like you say, the contract generally has written into it clauses that explain exactly what to do in these scenarios. Exactly. You put them on notice. They've got X Y Z days to remedy whatever situation. If they don't, you know, then they're in breach. And it's like, goodbye. You know, the issue there is the materials on site, what you've already paid for. That's the tricky one. And that's when you need to begin experting to assess percentage percentage of works complete, cost to complete. So you can actually not, you know, go through some financial penalty for, you know, kicking your builder off. You know, that's when I'll be seeking advice to someone else. Oh, Sarah, you are awesome. It's just been such a joy to uh, to have you uh, speak to the UA community about, about what you do and what you believe in. It fills me with great confidence that this change is happening. I, you know, every time I jump online with a, a like-minded colleague in the industry and I see that there's, you know, this, this isn't a solo fight. There are lots of us out there who um, are trying to help homeowners, you know, create much better outcomes for their projects and really create homes that are going to last them over the long term and help you know help us all in terms of the types of lives that we get to lead the planet we create the communities that we build I think it's fantastic so thank you so much for your time it's been such a pleasure to have you here you too Amelia I really appreciate the opportunity thank you now I hope that you found that interview with Sarah really enjoyable and that you took away a lot of actionable advice from it what I love about finding like-minded professionals who are passionate about their industry their client and their projects is that you get to see as the homeowner what you can and you should expect from those that you're working with. When you demand better, we actually raise the expectations and performance of everyone in the industry. We flush out the dodgy operators. They just don't get the work anymore. And when you know the kinds of questions to ask and the types of things to look for and what to expect from the people that you're working with, you know, that's my goal in these industry experts that I bring you to show you what is possible, what is out there, what exists. I keep saying there are so many good operators out there in the industry. I just want to help you find them, help you see how they operate, help you see what you can and should demand from the people that you're working with. And if you're not getting it, keep looking because that's how you're going to avoid working with dodgy operators and how you're going to find the right team for you and your project. So head to the show notes or this blog on Undercover Architects website. I've got links there on how you can find Rie and Sarah in particular and how you can get in touch with them and be sure to reach out and thank them if you enjoyed their interview. I know that my guests always love hearing feedback about how their knowledge has helped you. Now, as you can imagine, 
as with all the other episodes, there was a lot that I had to leave out. Uh, and so these are both edited versions of my full conversations with Ria and Sarah. And you can find the full interviews featured inside my online course for Australian homeowners, how to get it right in your reno or new home as a special bonus for members. Now, this is the last episode in season 10, believe it or not. I have received some fantastic feedback about how much you've enjoyed hearing from the generous and clever industry insiders that we've had on this season. It's been so great to introduce you to some like-minded and fantastic professionals who are doing awesome things both in Australia and in the USA to help homeowners create homes that work and feel great. So what's coming up next on the podcast? Well, we're actually going to have a break for the next few weeks. Uh, I'm going to catch my breath. My team are going to catch their breath. And then season 11 is coming your way and it's going to be a doozy. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you may remember my interview back in season eight with Francis Cosway from White Pebble Interiors. Now, Frances is an interior designer and I interviewed her about her own sustainable home in Melbourne. And Frances and I hit it off so well, we've actually teamed up to create a whole podcast season together plus more. Okay. So we're going to be diving into interior design and this isn't going to be about the fluff and the light stuff. It's actually going to be about the nitty gritty tips and information about what you need to consider for your finishes, your fixtures, and your general interior selections so that you're making choices that are going to have the longevity, the durability, and the performance that you need in a family home. Francis has a wealth of information and experience as an interior designer. And I've done a lot of interior design work in my career as well. And what's funny is we actually share a lot of ideas about the things you definitely need to avoid in your interior design selections uh, and the things that you, you know, we're, we're definitely aligned on in terms of, you know, that's the only choice that we think is good for that sort of is suitable for that, that sort of area. But there's also a couple of things that we really disagree on, which is always, uh, which is always fantastic. I love sharing I love sharing those kind of professional conversations with you uh, because what I feel it does for you is it helps you see the pros and the cons and what might be the different opinions about particular products or choices. So then you can see how that marries up and meets your own requirements and you can ultimately make the best choice for you and your home with all of that information in place. Now, as part of this upcoming season, we're also going to be releasing a brand new online program to help you with the interior design selections for your new home or renovation project. So the podcast season is going to give you a taste of this. It's going to give you an insight into the online program. And then inside the program, we're going to be packing loads of helpful information around design, detailing, dimensions, finishes, fixtures, really how to make those interior design selections confidently. I'm so excited to be bringing you this new course because I know how many of you find the process of interior design really exciting, but also really overwhelming. Uh, you know, it's that it's that thing. There are just so many choices when it comes to all of the finishes and surfaces and materials and products and fixtures and finishes to make inside your home. Uh, it can actually be really confusing for the uninitiated. And so I'm really looking forward to you having access to a reliable resource that really shares knowledge and information that's based on, you know, hundreds and hundreds of projects, huge amount of expertise and experience and really actionable advice and tips and strategies for your project. So stay tuned for the release of this brand new season. 
and for the release of this brand new online program in a few weeks time. And in the meantime, be sure to check out Undercover Architects website and social pages. I always share loads of helpful tips and ideas there. It's where you get to be the first to hear when things are being released and coming out. Make sure that you're on the UA news list as well. That's Uh, an email that I send out every Tuesday hits an an inbox without fail every Tuesday. And it's a great way to get reminders about the latest podcast episode to get other information about products and design tips and those kinds of things that I only share on those emails. Now, remember all these episodes in season 10 that we've just been having with all of these industry insiders. They're all edited versions of the full interviews that I did with these beautiful professionals and the complete interviews are now all living inside either How to Get It Right or the Welcome Home course. So these two courses are my online courses for Australian and American homeowners and they're really about helping you get ready for your renovation or new build project. So rather than you disappearing down a Google or a Pinterest rabbit hole or crowdsourcing bad advice from free Facebook groups about what you need to to do about, you know, getting it right in your design, your approvals, your team, your project overall, these courses actually take you through a proven step-by-step process to simplify the journey and help you be confident about creating your future home. So if you want to learn more about those courses, if you're an Australian, you can head to the web the website or the web address undercoverarchitect.com forward slash get it right uh, and if you're American head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash welcome home and those links will be in the show notes as well uh, and remember I've been mentioning if you've been listening to the end of every episode you will have heard this before I've actually got a special coupon code for podcast listeners to save $50 on each of these courses so if you type in podcast into the coupon code on the sales cart for how to get it right or the welcome home course, you'll see a $50 saving immediately applied and you can join using that coupon code. So those links are undercoverarchitect.com forward slash get it right for the Australian homeowners. And then for the American homeowners, it's undercoverarchitect.com forward slash welcome home. Now, as always, thank you so much for listening, for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until our next season, I'll see you then. Bye.